We have all been around people who needlessly repeat themselves over and over again. In fact, maybe some of us here in this room have that same tendency. When having a conversation, we say the same thing time and time again. The danger in that habit is that people can tend to tune us out or turn us off. After all, they've they've already heard what we have said, so why keep listening? So as we repeat ourselves once or twice or three times, they simply stop listening. Therefore, it is important that in our communication, we make a conscious effort not to repeat ourselves needlessly. However, a key word in that statement is the word needlessly. Not all repetition is bad. Not all repetition is needless. There are many occasions, many circumstances, many situations in life where repetition is needed. It's important. For example, coaches of athletic teams often repeat some of the same instructions multiple times to make sure everyone on the team gets it, to make sure everyone understands his role or her role, uh, the, the part that needs to be played. Teachers repeat some principles, some concepts multiple times to make sure that they stick with their students, to make sure they really understand them. Parents have to repeat some things many times in the process of raising children. So again, I'll say, not all repetition is bad. Not all repetition is needless. In fact, some repetition is good and is needed. This is especially true in the spiritual realm. We so easily forget some of the most important spiritual truths and lessons of life. Who hasn't read through the Old Testament and marveled at how quickly the people of Israel forgot the miraculous ways God intervened on their behalf? We've all had that experience. You read your Bible, you start reading, and you read the stories, and you think, how could they start complaining so soon, so quickly, after some miraculous event? When you read about the exodus from Egypt and the trek through the wilderness, you're amazed. The people begin complaining or grumbling about their circumstances. You're amazed when that happens, especially when they do so in such a brief time after God's miraculous provision. Yet we aren't really any different. We also forget what the Lord has said in His Word. We also forget what He has done in our lives. We also forget his faithfulness to us in the past when we are facing some momentous issue in life. As a result of this tendency, it is important for us to be reminded of things we already know. That kind of repetition is good. That kind of repetition is needed. It's necessary. The Apostle Peter understood this reality, so he made sure to give regular reminders to the people he shepherded. We see his discussion of that fact in our text this morning. If you are not already there, turn with me, please, over near the end of the New Testament to 2 Peter chapter 1. And please follow along as I read verses 5 through 15, although our focus is going to be on 12 through 15, but I want us to back up to get the flow and the full context in our minds before we jump into our text this morning. 
Second <clears throat> Peter chapter 1, verse 5. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. If you have been with us for the last few weeks, then you have seen the emphasis that the Apostle Peter placed on the importance of spiritual growth. That has really been our focus for several weeks now in the texts that we have considered. In verses 5 through 7, Peter urged and exhorted spiritual growth. In verse 8, he gave a positive incentive or motivation for spiritual growth. In verse 9, he gave a warning regarding a lack of spiritual growth or what can happen if we don't grow spiritually. In verse 10, he spoke of the assurance of salvation that accompanies spiritual growth. And then in verse 11, he mentioned the eternal reward that comes from spiritual growth. So Peter's emphasis thus far in his letter has been, clearly been, on the importance of spiritual growth for the child of God. He knew and understood how crucial and essential spiritual growth is for the people of God. It is a sad fact that not all Christians recognize that truth. There are far too many Christians who just stroll along in their lives without giving much thought or effort to the task of spiritual growth. And by the way, spiritual growth is a task. What I mean is, it is clear from verses 5 through 7 and other passages of Scripture that spiritual growth is our responsibility. Now, I'm not suggesting that we can accomplish it apart from the Lord and apart from His grace and apart from His strength. But there are many passages that clearly place the responsibility on our shoulders. Even here in verse 5, Peter tells us to make every effort or give all diligence to this task. So we are not passive. We're not bystanders. We have to apply ourselves and discipline ourselves to the task of spiritual growth. But as I said, there are far too many Christians who just stroll along in their lives 
without giving much thought or effort to the task of spiritual growth. They don't think about it very much, and they really don't do much of anything about it. Peter was well aware of that tendency among God's people. That is right why he wrote verses 5 through 11, which we have considered in great detail now. And that is why he said in our text for this morning that he would keep reminding his readers about the importance of this issue. Notice how he begins this paragraph of reminder in verse 12. He says, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Peter begins this verse with the conjunction, therefore, or the phrase, for this reason, depending on your translation. He begins that way because he is connecting his thought, this thought, with what he has just been saying in verses 5 through 11 about spiritual growth. He is basically saying this. Let me just paraphrase it. Because spiritual growth is so important, as I've just been saying in verses 5 through 11, I am not hesitant to repeat myself. I don't think it is unnecessary to repeat myself. Peter had already said these things to his readers. He had already preached this sermon to these people, but he was going to keep saying the same things over and over again because spiritual growth is that important. Not only had he already said these things to his readers, but he acknowledges here in this verse that they already knew this truth and they were established in it. Still, he felt it was important to remind them. Why? Because we all forget things that we've known. All of us. It happens very easily in life. In 2 Thessalonians 2.5, Paul said to the Thessalonians, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Paul had said these things to them, and he hadn't been gone very long, and they'd already forgotten. And as a result of forgetting what he had told them, they were all disturbed and all worked up over thinking they had missed the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air, that they were somehow in the day of the Lord's wrath, known as the tribulation period. Jude 5 says, But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, That's an interesting phrase. You once knew it. Implication, you once knew it. You don't know it anymore because you've forgotten it. We all have that tendency. And Peter knew that his readers were no exception. Even though they knew this truth and were established in it, Peter wasn't going to take any chances. He understood how subtle the devil is. He knew how crafty the enemy of our souls is. He had surely seen Christians who were doing well for a period of time get sidetracked or lulled into spiritual apathy. He had probably seen Christians that he never would have guessed would end up spiritually useless actually get to that point in their lives. So he wasn't taking any chances, assuming nothing. On a personal note, As I studied this passage, I I found myself relating to what was in Peter's heart when he wrote these words. I've been in ministry long enough to see some shocking and heartbreaking lapses in the lives of Christian people who at one point were, were doing really well spiritually. 
exemplary. Now, I'm not just talking about Christians who lapse into sin. That is always grievous and heartbreaking. I'm talking about Christians who for a while really pursue the Lord and really pursue spiritual growth in an exemplary manner, but later on they just get sidetracked into a lot of other pursuits. It's not that they turn and go into sin. It's just that they cease pursuing the Lord with passion. They stop pursuing spiritual growth with aggressiveness. Now let me tell you, that is just about as heartbreaking as seeing a Christian plunge into sin. In one way, it's more sticky as a trap because the Christian who has plunged into sin knows he's not doing well spiritually, but the Christian who has lapsed into apathy may not realize just how bad his situation really is. I'm sure you've heard the story of the frog that was placed in a small pot of water. It was a pot that the frog could easily jump out of at any time. The pot of water was heated very slowly, very gradually, imperceptibly. Eventually, the water began to boil, and the boiling water killed the frog, though he could have jumped out of the pan at any time. That illustrates exactly what can happen to us in life. We can digress and get sidetracked at such a slow pace so gradually that we don't even realize what is happening to us. And before we realize it, our passion for spiritual growth is gone. Our fervency for spiritual growth is gone. Our hunger for Christ and His Word is absent. In light of that possibility... Let's pause for just a moment at this point in the message to do some personal evaluation. We don't have to wait until the end of the message to evaluate, which is what we usually do. But let's stop now. Let's pause for just a moment now. If you are a Christian, if you know Christ, take an honest look at your life and ask yourself if you are really passionate about spiritual growth. If you are inclined to answer that question with a yes, if you're inclined to say, yes, I am, then ask the follow-up question, what evidence is there in your life to support your assertion? In other words, what does that look like in your life? If you say, yes, I am passionate about spiritual growth, what does it look like? What practical steps are you taking that would show you are really passionate about spiritual growth? You see, it's easy for us to claim that we are serious about growth, to say we are serious about growth, but what do we really do about it? The sad reality is some Christians do little to nothing about it, or or they intend to do something about it, but then they forget to. They just never get around to it. Peter was well aware of that, which is why he gave this reminder in verse 12. And I want you to notice something about this verse. He not only reminded those who were not pursuing spiritual growth with passion, 
But according to this verse, he even reminded those who knew this truth and were established in it. People that we might assume would need no reminder. Yet he reminded them. He explains further in the next verse. He says in verse 13, Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you. Peter's hope, his intention, his desire was to stir up his readers by reminding them. We all need that kind of thing sometimes, beloved. We need to be prodded or goaded or nudged to move off dead center when we have lapsed into apathy or passivity in our spiritual growth. Peter knew this was the right thing to do. And there's an urgency in what he writes here because he knew that he would not be able to do this for an indefinite period of time. In other words, he knew his time was limited. He knew the time was coming, as he says here in verse 13, that he would put off his earthly dwelling, put off his body, or as it is translated in the NIV and the New King James Version, put off his tent. That's a very picturesque way to describe death. Think of it this way. Death is setting aside your tent. You see, your inner person, the inner man, is clothed in a body or a tent. And physical death is when your body or your tent is set aside for your inner person to go be with the Lord. The inner man goes to be with the Lord. And when he returns in the clouds to gather his church, he will bring, 1 Thessalonians 4 says, he will bring the souls or spirits of all those who are there with him. Their bodies will be raised incorruptible and will be reunited with the inner man because we will not spend eternity as spirits. We are not not fundamentally spirit beings. We are human beings. We will spend eternity as human beings with a perfect body. But there is a temporary phase when the inner man is separated from the body, and that's what Peter is talking about here. And that's what he elaborates on in the next verse. He says in verse 14, Knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Peter anticipated that his death was soon. Why? Was he in ill health when he wrote these words? No, not at all. Not No clues that that was the case at all. He was in his 60s or 70s when he wrote this, but he knew he was not going to die of old age. He knew what most of us don't know, and that is how he was going to die. He knew he was going to be martyred, and by the time he wrote this letter, Nero's persecution had already started. In fact, it is possible that Peter was in prison as he wrote this letter. Whether he was or wasn't, he did end up dying in Nero's persecution of believers. He died as a martyr, and he died by crucifixion. He knew that's how he was going to die, because Jesus had told him that this is how he was going to die. Back up with me to John 21 for that that interaction between Jesus and Peter. The very last chapter of John's Gospel. (coughs) 
One of the reasons why John added this final chapter of his gospel is to tell us what happened to his good friend Peter. If it weren't for this chapter, it would be difficult to understand why Peter played such an important role in the first few chapters of the book of Acts. The last time Peter was in the spotlight in this gospel, he was vehemently denying the Lord Jesus, calling down curses on his head if he were lying, saying something along the lines, May God strike me dead if I am lying. I don't know this man. That was the last time Peter was in the spotlight in this gospel. So it begs the question, what happened to produce such a drastic change like we see in his life as we come into the book of Acts? Obviously, the two appearances of Jesus to the disciples in chapter 20 down in Jerusalem had a profound impact on Peter. But you still have the impression that things with Peter aren't like they were before that disastrous night when Peter denied Jesus repeatedly and vehemently. So John gives us this final chapter of his gospel to show us a major turning point in Peter's life and service for the Lord Jesus. In verses 1 through 14 of this chapter, and we don't have time to look at those verses, Jesus appeared to the disciples on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He revealed himself through a miracle of providing a huge catch of fish for the disciples. Then, John tells us, he prepared breakfast for the disciples on a fire of coals. That's very significant. As Peter sat by that fire of coals, he undoubtedly thought back a few nights to when he had repeatedly and brazenly denied his Lord. Jesus is about to open that fresh wound. Jesus did not do this to be cruel, but rather to provide a major turning point in Peter's life and service for the Lord Jesus. I mean, think about it this way. Peter had denied Jesus publicly by a fire of coals, right? Remember that from the gospel records. Peter had denied Jesus publicly by a fire of coals, and now Jesus is about to address him and restore him publicly by a fire of coals. The purpose of this is not just to make Peter face his wrong publicly. No. Jesus does this because Peter was the leader of the disciples, and the other disciples needed to see that in spite of the denials, Peter was still commissioned by Jesus to the task of feeding and leading the sheep. So in verse 15, we pick up the story. John 21, 15. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Notice that Jesus doesn't call him Peter, which meant rock. He calls him by his old name, Simon. That had to get Peter's attention right away. As you know, Jesus had changed his name from Simon to Peter to drive home in Peter's mind what Jesus wanted him to become. A rock, solid, firm, unswerving. 
That's not what he had been a few nights earlier. And so Jesus calls him by his old name. Simon, that got Peter's attention, I guarantee you. Got his attention. And once Jesus had Peter's attention, he asked him a pointed question. Do you love me more than these? That raises the question, of course, more than these what? Well, it's possible that Jesus is referring to the other disciples. In other words, Peter, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Now, at first, that may sound strange to you. Why would Jesus try to ask Peter some type of comparative question about his love as compared to the other, other disciples' love? Well, remember, that's exactly what Peter had claimed in the upper room. In Mark 14, 29, Peter said to Jesus, Even if all are made to fall away, yet I will not be. In other words, Jesus, doesn't matter what all the others do, I'll never forsake you, I'll never fall away, I'll be there for you. Uh, in essence, he was saying, I, I love you more than they do. So it's possible that Jesus was saying, Peter, do you still make that claim? Do you still claim to love me more than all the others love me? That's one possibility. Another possibility is maybe Jesus was referring to the fish, the nets, the boats, when he said, do you love me more than these? Pointing to all of these things that were right there around them on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. They had a great catch of fish. They had the nets there, the boats. Do you love me more than these? That was, you'll remember, Peter's occupation originally. Something he evidently loved doing. Do you love me more than you love all of this, Peter? Do you love me more than you love fishing? Whichever Jesus had in mind, and we don't know for sure, whichever Jesus had in mind, Peter answered the question in the affirmative. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said that he did love the Lord Jesus. As many of you are aware, there's a little play on words here in the Greek text between agapao and phileo, the Greek word for love and so forth. But even apart from that, Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. Verse 16, Jesus said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Peter had denied the Lord three times, so this loving conversation is not over. This verse tells us Jesus asked him a second time, but there's, as you know, going to be a third time. Verse 17, <clears throat> Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And here, by the way, Jesus changed words to the same Greek word that Peter had used the first two times. Do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Peter was grieved because Jesus asked him three times. You can almost feel this piercing Peter's heart like a barbed treble hook. But in spite of Peter's failures, the Lord gave him the task and privilege of leading and feeding the sheep. All three times Jesus said that to Peter. There's a tremendous lesson of forgiveness and usefulness in these verses. 
It's very easy to get discouraged over our failures and think that we can't be forgiven or we can't be used by the Lord any longer. But this incident was with Peter is a breath of hope to those of us who fail. And there's more here for Peter. Verse 18, Most assuredly, Jesus had used that word many times in his teaching ministry. Peter had heard it. He knew that meant, this is really important. Get this. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This Jesus spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. This was a prophecy by Jesus that one day Peter would die by crucifixion. You know, we often put Peter down and make fun of him and make jokes about him, but I wonder if we realize the internal fortitude Jesus had built into this man's life. Think about it. I mean, if Jesus told me that one day I would be crucified for him, knowing how heinous crucifixion was, I would probably worry about it every day of my life. I'd probably die of apoplexy before it happened. Every day I would wonder, is this going to be the day that they're going to grab me and start nailing me to a cross? Every time I saw someone carrying a wooden pole, I would think, this is it. Here we go. But Jesus knew Peter was strong enough to handle such a startling revelation. In fact, I believe, as I've thought about this through the years, I believe this was a thrill to Peter's heart to hear Jesus say this. How could that be? Well, see this from Peter's perspective. When he had the opportunity to stand up for the Lord and display his love for his Savior, he blew it. Majorly. But now Jesus says to him that one day he will die as a martyr. So to Peter, that means that the next time he's confronted with the similar situation, he won't blow it. That must have made Peter want to do a dance. Historical tradition tells us that Peter was crucified, and in his death he glorified God, just as Jesus said here. He, he glorified God by showing his faith and his loyalty to Jesus. But the only way that would be sure to happen was for Peter not to get sidetracked from following the Lord. So at the end of verse 19, Jesus said this. John tells us right at the end of verse 19, And when Jesus had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. Peter, follow me. And Peter did follow. We see his unswerving devotion to the Lord throughout the book of Acts and in his two letters. His life wasn't characterized by perfection, but it certainly was characterized by going the right direction. And then in verse 20, Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So this is obviously a description of John. Peter turns around and sees John, described here as the one Jesus loved, the one who leaned on Jesus' breast, the one who asked Jesus the question, Lord, who's going to betray you? Verse 21, Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, But Lord... What about this man? As you probably know, Peter and John were very good friends. They had been partners in the fishing business before Jesus called them. And in the book of Acts, they would be a ministry team for many years to come. So it is natural 
for Peter to be curious about John's future. Jesus just told Peter about his future. You're going to die for me. You're going to die by crucifixion. Well, okay, Lord, but what about John? Peter wanted to know. But Jesus wanted to use this curiosity to teach Peter another important lesson. Verse 22. Jesus said to him, If I will, or if I desire, that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Peter needed to learn a lesson that we all need to learn. And that is we are redeemed individually. We are rebuked individually. We are rewarded individually. And even though it's true that we are to care for one another, that we are one in the body of Christ, we cannot, beloved, please hear this, we cannot let others determine whether or not we follow the Lord. Jesus was saying to Peter and to us now in our day, you follow me, Peter, regardless of whether others do or not. You follow me regardless of what other Christians do to you. You follow me regardless of what happens to other Christians. You follow me regardless of what my plan is for other Christians. You follow me. This is very emphatic in the original language. You follow me, exclamation point. Peter never forgot this conversation with the Lord. And that is what he is referring to in the first chapter of his second letter. Now let's go back there to our text over in 2 Peter 1. That conversation from John 21 is what Peter is referring to here in verse 14 when he says, knowing knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. The Lord Jesus had told Peter that he would die a martyr's death. So, as Peter began to get older, which he was when he wrote this second letter, he knew it must be soon because he knew he wasn't going to die of old age. There was no doubt in his mind. He wasn't going to die of old age. It was approximately 40 years earlier when Jesus and Peter had that conversation in John 21. Now think about that. Just think if when you were about 30 years old, Jesus told you that one day you would die a martyr's death. Wouldn't that weigh on your mind? I know it would for me. But Peter lived with that realization for approximately 40 years. And it didn't seem to weigh on him. When you see him in the book of Acts, there is no hint that he was worried or concerned. In fact, as I said earlier, he was probably relieved. He was relieved and thankful at the thought that the next time he was confronted with a life-threatening situation regarding his devotion to Jesus, he would be faithful even unto death. And now as he writes this second letter, he is certain that the time is near. That's why he felt a burden to make sure that his readers were remembering the importance of spiritual growth and spiritual development. It was so much on his heart that he wasn't content just to remind them in life. He wanted to remind them even after his death. And that's what he says in verse 15. He says, Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. 
since Peter knew he wasn't going to be around much longer, he wanted to ensure or guarantee that his readers would have regular reminders. That's why he wrote this letter. He knew they would keep it. They would read it. They would reread it. And every time they did, it would be another reminder to them. The letter would serve as a continual reminder to his readers of the importance of spiritual growth. Every time they read and reread the letter, they would see and hear Peter's passion coming through in verses 5 through 11. It's almost as if Peter is saying, I want this truth, I want my words to be ringing in your ears when I'm gone. I want, as it were, you to have hear me sitting on your shoulder whispering in your ear. It's interesting to note the way Peter describes his impending death here at the end of this verse. Most of our English translations have the word decease or departure. Mine says that. He says, I, I want to be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. And I, I know some of the other translations use the, use the word departure. This is literally the Greek word exodus. Exodus. It's the same Greek word used to describe the exodus of the people from Egypt into the promised land. The reason why I mention this is because it's another indication that death for the child of God, death for the Christian, simply means that we exit this body and go to another place, which is the Lord's presence. We have our own personal exodus. We leave one place, go to another place. We don't cease to exist. We don't go into soul sleep. We depart or exit our bodies and go to be with the Lord Jesus. That is why Stephen, the very first Christian martyr, called out to Jesus as he was dying and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Here I come, Lord. Here I come. Stephen knew where his spirit was going immediately at death. He knew where his inner man was going. He was going to be with Christ. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Paul said the same thing in Philippians 1.23. He says, I have this desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. And Peter indicates the same thing here in verse 15. I'm about to have my exodus. I'm about to leave my body and go to be with Christ. So Stephen said it. Paul said it. Peter said it. This is the unanimous testimony of the New Testament. When we die, we go to be with Christ if we belong to him. Peter knew he would soon be departing to go be with the Lord. And that's why he felt compelled to give his readers this final exhortation. So in summary, Peter preached and taught this truth to this group of believers when he was with them personally. He reminded them of it when he had the opportunity. And he wrote this letter as a further guarantee that even after his death, they wouldn't forget. Beloved, surely... Surely that lets us know how important spiritual growth is. It was that important to Peter because it's that important to our Lord. The question that remains is, is it that important to you and to me? Do our choices and priorities show 
it's that important to us? Does our life show it's that important to us? It should. It really should. Let's bow together in closing this morning. We took just a brief time in the middle of the message to stop for evaluation, but it's certainly appropriate to do that once again here at the end. To look at our lives and ask ourselves these questions. Is spiritual growth really that important to us? Have we lost our zeal, lost our passion? Have we begun coasting or slipping into apathy? Slipping into just a a state of lack of zeal, lack of passion? Are we like so many who intend to do something to prompt our spiritual growth, but we just never get around to it, never make it a priority? I remind you, it's not only tragic when Christians turn into sin or lapse towards sin. It's tragic when Christians just lapse into apathy and more difficult to recognize because it's not so obvious. Therefore, my encouragement to you and to me is that we ask the Lord to give us an honest, objective look at ourselves and our lives to see if, to see if spiritual growth is still the priority for us that it ought to be, if we're still pursuing it with passion. And if you're here today without a relationship to Jesus Christ by faith, you can have no spiritual growth. You can't grow in a relationship you don't have. So the starting point is to surrender your life to Christ. Repent of your sin and turn to Jesus Christ in simple childlike faith. Humble yourself before him. Ask him to forgive you of your sins, to be your Lord and Savior, and then begin growing in your relationship to him. Father, as we have spent these several weeks now in this section of Peter's letter, we have been really impressed with the fervency, the the passion of the words that Peter writes here regarding spiritual growth. And it's a, a good challenge to our hearts, a good reminder, as he says in our text for this morning. We need to be reminded of this. We can like the the frog in the pot of water, just slowly, imperceptibly be lulled into a very, very dangerous condition. And we don't want that to happen in our lives. So may your Spirit stir us, prompt us, nudge us, goad us, whatever it takes, so that we keep moving forward. Or as Jesus said to Peter there in John 21, you follow me. So we keep following, keep pursuing. And in closing, we pray for anyone here in our midst who doesn't know your Son as Lord and Savior. Father, we pray that you'd be pleased to open their hearts, open their eyes, open their minds to understand their true spiritual condition and what they need to do to turn to Jesus Christ in simple childlike faith, in whose name we pray. Amen.